Folks, today's podcast is about three CBC stories that are unrelated. But if you look at the three together, you see a pattern. A pattern of Liberal Party or NDP Party propaganda. It's not real journalism. Such weird spin. One of them on immigration, one of them on global warming, and one of them a seven-reporter attack on Jason Kinney. I've never seen seven reporters cover a story before in Canada. Have you? Uh, I should tell you that the Globe and Mail story that busted Justin Trudeau and Jody Wilson-Raybould, that was written by three reporters. What do you think the CBC put seven reporters on? Well, listen, and you're about to hear. Hey, can you do me a quick favor, though? Can you go to the rebel.media slash shows, and can you become a premium subscriber? A premium subscriber gives you two things. First of all, it lets you see this show in video form, which I think is useful because I show pictures and stuff. I show video. Uh, and lets you see uh, the shows of my colleagues, Sheila Gunn-Reed and David Menzies. And second of all, and maybe this is even more compelling, it pays the bills here because, of course, the podcast is free. But if you become a premium subscriber, it's eight bucks a month, and that helps us keep the lights on. You can do that by going to therebel.media slash shows. Just eight bucks a month. You can give us 80 bucks for the whole year. Without further ado, here's my assessment of the state of the art of Canada's state broadcaster. Tonight, three stories by the CBC State Broadcaster prove that it is indeed an enemy of the people. I'll show you. It's March 27th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I want to show you three crazy stories that the CBC ran in the course of the past 24 hours or so. They show a pattern, and I want to tell you what that pattern means and why it's important. But first, you do realize that the CBC's news division is larger than every other media company in Canada combined, right? How do you think that near monopoly distorts our understanding of the world, especially political issues that Justin Trudeau, the CBC's boss, has a stake in? I acknowledge that there are other media companies in Canada, too. On television, there's CTV and Global. There is some private radio left in Canada, too. And though they're all dying, there are some newspapers and maybe two news magazines left in the country. But the TV and the radio stations are all heavily regulated by the government, the CRTC. And the media companies who own TV and radio stations often are in the cell phone and cable business, which are even more highly regulated. So, for example, Global TV. It's owned by the same company that owns Freedom Mobile, the Canadian cell phone company, and Shaw, the cable company. CTV is owned by Bell, the cable and cell phone company. So they're all highly regulated, not just on the TV and radio part of their business, but the other parts of their business. And now, of course, all the newspapers in the country are going to be bailed out by Trudeau, so they will be subject to his scrutiny. And that's just on the ownership and high-level corporate level. On the individual reporter level, as you know, there have been thousands of layoffs in the media in the past 10 years, as Facebook and Google devour all the advertising money and the legacy media die. So those papers are either going to go out of business or maybe, if they're lucky, find some billionaire patron to treat them as some sort of a plaything, like Carlos Slim, the Mexican billionaire who owns the New York Times does, or Jeff Bezos, the Amazon.com billionaire who owns the Washington Post. But for the average reporter in Canada, 
being laid off or having their newspaper just close all, uh, altogether is a very real prospect. And the reason I mention that in the same breath as these other things is that journalists are always operating with one eye on the CBC as their backup plan. So although the CBC state broadcaster is already bigger than all other news media combined, its influence is even bigger than that because journalists at the Toronto Star and the National Post and the Calgary Herald and every tiny little paper, is all, they're all thinking, if I get laid off next week, I'll have to apply at the CBC because it'll never go out of business because of its annual $1.5 billion bailout from Trudeau. So I better be careful not to color outside the lines editorially. I'll make sure I support Omar Khadr like the CBC does, that I oppose Donald Trump like the CBC does, that I support the carbon tax and the theory of man-made global warming like the CBC does. And I'll never get too tough on left-wing heroes, whether it's Elizabeth May or Justin Trudeau or Rachel Notley or even foreign left-wing heroes like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or George Soros. So even while they're still working at a private media company, journalists are already polishing their resumes for the CBC or even to go to work directly for some left-wing government spin doctor. More than a dozen reporters in Alberta, including some who covered the 2015 Alberta provincial election, went to work for Rachel Notley uh, after she won. They probably got a huge raise, tons of benefits, and a shorter workday out of it, and don't think they weren't pulling their punches during the campaign to make sure they'd get those re rewards afterwards. So that's a, all a lengthy preamble to my story today. Just by chance, I came across three stories in the past day or so, and they all just sort of clicked as a pattern. The first one I came across in a tweet from Ahmed Hassan, the Somali migrant who has himself now become Canada's immigration minister. As Canada ages, he wrote on Twitter, immigration expected to keep Alberta's workforce strong for decades. And then he adds why immigration matters. And of course it links to a CBC story. And I'll show you that story. Is Alberta's workforce strong right now uh, is a question that's raised. And is immigration what's going to keep it strong in the future? Is the unemployment situation in Alberta a reason for immigration? Is that what's going to fix things there? Those are really weird questions for anything that knows anything, anyone who knows anything about Alberta. Let's take a look at the story. This is a story he linked to in the tweet. As Canada ages, immigration expected to keep Alberta's workforce strong for decades. Now, you know, as Ahmed Hassan apparently doesn't, that Alberta has the highest unemployment rate west of the Atlantic, right? It's got a higher unemployment rate than Quebec, right? You know that Calgary is the city in Canada with the highest unemployment rate in the entire country. You know that, right? Ahmed Hassan doesn't. A and it's, they're not unemployed because they lack skills training or they need to learn how to code or whatever the buzzwords are from know-nothings like Justin Trio. In fact, as you may know, and I know this because I'm from there, and it's something I'm Calgarians boast about. Calgary, city with the highest unemployment in Canada, has the highest level of post-secondary education in the land. These are unemployed, skilled trades, unemployed college and university grads. They're not unemployed because they're useless. They're unemployed because the government is useless. The government, federally, provincially, has blocked the most valuable industry in Canada, the oil and gas industry, by canceling and vetoing pipelines to take out the oil and gas to market. Let me read a bit from the stupid story. 
There have been plenty of warnings about the looming impacts of Canada's aging labor force, but a new report suggests the working population in Alberta will remain relatively young and become increasingly diverse in the coming decades. What? what? Aging workforce? Again, I happen to know because I'm from there. Alberta has the youngest workforce in Canada. And diverse, uh, I mean, maybe, but what's that got to do with anything other than some leftist fetish? Blocking the pipelines doesn't just put white people or aboriginal people or visible minorities out of work. It puts everyone out of work. What a weird story. Perfect CBC. No wonder Ahmed Hassan tweeted. I'll read some more. This gets really weird. Alberta's two largest cities already enjoy the highest labor force partition participation rate among major population centers across the country. According to the Statistics Canada report released late last week, the rate is defined as the percentage of people 15 and over who are working or looking for work. Alberta's rate was around 72% in 2017. That's projected to dip slightly to 71% by 2036. The national rate, meanwhile, is expected to fall as low as 62% by then. This is largely the result of population aging as the large cohort of baby booners empty, enters their uh, retirement years, Statistics Canada said in a release. So just take a moment here, just for a second. So that means 72 or 71% of adults in Alberta are either working or trying to find work. That's, a, that's almost 10% more than the rest of the country, where people just don't work as much. They, they, they retire, they, they go on unemployment, they... They choose to become homemakers, whatever. They're just not working. My point is, even though unemployment is the highest in Calgary, that hasn't made Calgarians giving up, give up trying to find work. All they need is for Rachel Notley and Justin Trudeau and BC's premier to get out of the way and let the pipelines be built. There are about 200,000 Albertans just ready to go. Skills, willingness, still looking, still optimistic, everything. It's just sad that you've got this great labor pool, so well-trained, and no jobs because of stupid politicians. Alberta has massive unemployment because of Justin Trudeau's cabinet, including Ahmed Hassan. Alberta has skilled oil patch workers. Um, new immigrants from, I don't know, Somalia or Syria or Afghanistan or Pakistan, these are some of Trudeau's favorite countries when you measure by recent immigration. They don't actually have oil sands skills, sorry. They don't do a lot of fracking over there in Pakistan. So they're not really going to fill those high-skilled jobs if they ever come back. Probably 200,000 or so people who were last laid off by those oil and gas companies are going to be the first to be rehired again. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of this story to you. It's just so weird. It's such a forced story. It's such a work of fiction. It makes no sense at all. In fact, hey, Albertans, things are going so great over there jobs-wise, we'll bring huge immigration with less skills to keep it going. It just, so, it just doesn't make any sense. But Ahmed Hassan used it as a proof point that we need more immigration to Alberta. Story number two. Uh, a tweet by Catherine McKenna, another cabinet minister. Doctors and medical professionals understand fighting climate change benefits our environment, our economy, and our health. While climate change is the greatest health threat of the century, climate action is the greatest health opportunity. I'm sorry, I feel dumber just reading that to you. I apologize. And of course, that tweet links to another CBC story. Do you think it's a bit odd that CBC's main use 
is to publish opinions of liberal cabinet ministers, especially bizarre claims that even other liberal media like CTV or Global just probably wouldn't even say with a straight face. Is climate change really the greatest health threat of the century? You should say millennium. Uh, Catherine McKenna is a social justice warrior who deliberately talks like a Kardashian. So I'm not sure I'm gonna trust her on anything science-y. I don't much trust the United Nations either, or their department called the World Health Organization, but I probably trust the World Health Organization on health things a little more than I trust McKenna. Here's what they have to say on that question. Uh, in about 30 seconds, I found this page, the top 10 causes of death. And you can see this was from last spring, and published in the last 12 months. Let me read a bit. Now, I'm gonna get a little science-y here, but I'm, I'm guessing you're probably going to welcome that to flush the stupid out of your system after I just read that McKenna tweet to you. Again, I apologize for that. So let me read a little bit from the World Health Organization. Of the 56.9 million deaths worldwide in 2016, more than half, 54%, were due to the top 10 causes. Ischemic, I, I practiced pronouncing that word. I can't really say it. Ischemic heart disease, I can't say that word, and stroke are the world's biggest killers accounting for a combined 15.2 million deaths in 2016. These diseases have remained the leading causes of death globally in the last 15 years. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease claimed 3 million lives in 2016, while lung cancer, along with trachea and bronchus cancers, caused 1.7 million deaths. Diabetes killed 1.6 million people in 2016, up from less than 1 million in 2000. I think that means we're eating more sugar and fat. Deaths due to dementia is more than doubled between 2000 and 2016, making it the fifth leading cause of global deaths in 2016 compared to 14th in 2000. I think that's because people are living longer, uh, poor people are living longer. Anyway, so heart attacks are number one. Strokes, lung disease, diabetes, dementia. You can see the whole chart if you're curious. Uh, road injuries are on there. You see that near the bottom in green. And even diarrhea, I know that sounds sort of gross, but in poor parts of the world, absolutely. Uh, lots of footnotes and proof on the World Health Organization website. Uh, I think they're probably pretty accurate. I, I don't think there's a lot of angles in lying about how many people die from this or that disease. But Catherine McKenna just told you that we're all going to die because of global warming. It's the number one cause of death or something. And her proof of course, as a CBC propaganda piece. So let's read a bit of that CBC propaganda, but not too much, lest we get stupid again. Fighting climate change, just part of being a doctor, <laughs> says Yellowknife physician in Saskatoon. Let me read underneath, it says, doctor calls climate change a public health crisis that needs urgent treatment. Yeah, um, no. Fighting climate change isn't part of being a doctor, you quack. That's called politics. But, but look at that horrible picture. I just showed it there again. This was the picture on the website. Just in case you need to see how bad carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases are in Canada. Look at that picture. But wait, hang on. That, that, that's not even Canada, is it? And that white and gray stuff in the sky, that, that's not carbon dioxide. Let me read the caption there. Steam rises from the Neurath and Niederhausen coal-fired power plants in Bergheim, Germany. Europe's largest carbon dioxide source. Oh, uh, so that's a picture from Germany, not, not Canada? But the CBC uses that in their propaganda piece about Canada? And, and that's not even carbon dioxide in the sky. Of course not, carbon dioxide is invisible. 
That's not even smoke, though, or smog. That's steam. And by the way, other than steam, that, that picture actually looks sort of, sort of beautiful, doesn't it? The environment, lush green fields, happy little lambs. And at a clear blue sky, once you look past the steam, which obviously dissipates, which is what steam does. So, so it's a propaganda fail on about three levels using that photograph. But let me read a bit more about this doctor who has made a diagnosis. The planet has a fever. Mother Earth is in digestion, people. <laughs> Mother Nature has a tummy ache. I'm a doctor. That's not medicine, folks. That's quackery published by the CBC in the service of their master, the liberal government. No wonder Catherine McKenna quoted it. Let me read a little bit from the story. Dr. Courtney Howard, an emergency room physician in Yellowknife, spends half her time fighting climate change, which she says is a public health crisis. Oh, <laughs> really? So in the emergency rooms in Yellowknife, is, is, that, is that what's coming in the door? Doctor, stop! We have a patient here who has come down with a sickness. Another one? What? Well, global warming-itis, doctor, it's the new plague. Yeah, let me read some more. As the planet warms, our risks of becoming sick increase, Howard said, due to things like Lyme disease spreading north and droughts displacing hundreds of thousands of people. Really, is that a fact? So warmth kills more people than cold does? I dispute that the Earth is warming in any measurable way. Satellite measurements show that the barely perceptible warming in the last century or so went on an 18-year hiatus. It just stopped, according to the UN itself. But put that aside. If warm climates truly are worse than cold climates, why are there only 20,000 people who live in Yellowknife? But the top 10 cities in the world measured by population are in warm climates, even in the tropics, massive cities with literally tens of millions of people in fact, all the big cities are near the equator. Why is life so barren in the Arctic? There's no trees up there. Uh, once you get past the tree line, well, I've been up to Tuktoyuk Duck and up to Inuvik, there's no trees. Because the permafrost, the ground is frozen solid forever. So no roots can go down. Food has to be shipped in. There's very little life in the north. Whereas life explodes, it teems in the tropics. The sheer variety of plants and animals and, of course, people. Only a kook, an extremely political emergency room doctor pretending to be a climate scientist, would say that cold is better for life than warmth. It won't surprise you to learn that 20 times more people die each year from cold than from heat. Less political parts of the CBC even acknowledge as much. Look at this, look at this story. All the death from cold snaps, especially of homeless people. But let me read to you from this genius. There's wildfires in the West. The drought here and the severe cold this winter. Tornadoes in Ottawa. Heat-related deaths in Quebec. Howard told Laisha Grabinski on CBC's Saskatoon morning. <laughs> I feel like climate change is landing with Canadians in a new way in their bodies. It's not just a CO2 chemical on a graph anymore. Hey guys, is that sciency? Is that doctor talk there? Hey guys, climate change is landing in a new way in your body. 
Show me on the doll where the climate change touched you. How much junk science quackery can one doctor spout before it's, uh, you know, a malpractice issue? That's so embarrassing. No CBC reporter even put their byline on it. It's written anonymously. No one wanted to sign this crap. I wonder if it was even written by the CBC or someone in Catherine McKenna's office and just sent to the CBC and they were told to publish it. It's a state broadcaster after all. But let me show you my favorite CBC moment of all. I told you I have three stories. Um, the third is this story about Jason Kenney and every poll uh, in the province says that uh, Kenney is about to absolutely crush Rachel Notley and the NDP in next month's election in Alberta, just a wipeout. I, I think I predicted the other day that out of 87 electoral districts, 87 MLAs, the NDP will hold 20. I think that might even be optimistic. It's going to be a blowout. Now I have my quarrels with Jason Kenney. I think he's too politically correct these days. I think he submits to the mean kids and the media party too much. I think he throws overboard his candidates at the first whiff of controversy. He lets the CBC make decisions for him. I think he's too dainty about all that. And he's badmouthed unemployed oil workers time and again, telling them they protest too impolitely. I, I think his shenanigans of secretly working with other fake candidates in his party's leadership race, I think that looks dodgy and it looks undemocratic and just weird given how big a lead he has. Why is he even doing it? But that said, all of those caveats and quarrels aside, he's going to fix a big problem on April 16th, Election Day number. He's going to weed the garden pretty big time. He's going to end the Alberta government's war on oil and gas. And maybe he'll help end the BC government's war on oil again. And maybe he'll help end the Canadian government's war on oil and gas. It will be good news, despite his flaws. But look at this. This is the last of the three CBC stories I'm mentioning. Left with fines, charges, and shame, Calgary Political Insider alleges voter fraud in UCP leadership campaign. Let me read the first few lines. Alberta's election commissioner has ruled that Hardiel Mann made irregular political contributions and the Calgary political operative alleges the existence of a plan to commit voter fraud in order to secure the election of Jason Kenney as United Conservative Party leader, a controversy that's erupting in the midst of a provincial election. So this is about the fake candidate who was running just to attack Kenney's leadership rival, Brian Jean, and then he defected to support Kenny. Like I say, it looks dodgy, but it's been in the news for weeks. I think it's gross, and I think a lot of conservatives do too, but I don't think there is a single true conservative in all of Alberta who will now say, well, Jason Kenny was tricky in internal party politics, so I think I'm going to stick with the NDP destroyers and their carbon tax and their war on pipelines. Yeah, no, not one. Now, if a law is broken, let there be a charge and a trial. But the province is so desperate to get rid of Notley. It's like Donald Trump once quipped. He could shoot someone in midtown Manhattan and his supporters would still vote for him. Not because they like shooting, but because they know the stakes are so high and the alternative is so bad and they need Trump to defeat the Democrat media complex. Same with Kenny. Stupid background, backroom games, sure, but not stupid enough to let the NDP have one more second of power. That is not my point today. We've already done a whole show on that subject. Let me tell you my point today. Scroll down the entire story here. Look at how 
long this story is. Keeps scrolling, keeps scrolling, keeps scrolling, keeps scrolling. This is, what is this like a book? This is a book, huge story. Keep going, keep going. Now look at this part, way at the bottom. Um, I'm gonna read what you see on the screen there. This team from CBC Calgary has been investigating allegations of wrongdoing in the UCP leadership campaign. Tips and correspondence can be sent in confidence to Drew Anderson at cbc.ca, Carolyn Dunn at cbc.ca, Allison Dempster, Brian Labby, Audrey Neveux, with files from Charles Russnell and Jenny, Jenny Russell. So let me count that up. One, two, three. I, thi I think that was seven reporters. Seven reporters! Let's say there's seven! I, th I think that's more reporters than the whole rebel has in the whole world. The CBC has put seven reporters on this story. Do you think the CBC has ever put seven reporters on an NDP scandal? Not, not even a party scandal, a government scandal. No, no we, we know that they have not done that. In fact, the CBC has not uncovered a single scandal in four years of Rachel Notley's NDP government, not because there have been no scandals. Our Sheila Gunn-Reed breaks a story about a scandal every week about NDP, a major scandal she breaks once a month. It's why Sheila's books about Rachel Notley are number one bestsellers. It's the only place to get the real news. Do you think the CBC has seven reporters even looking into the SNC-Lavalin scandal of Justin Trudeau? Of course not. He pays their paychecks. Funny how the CBC hasn't broken a single story about this whole SNC-Lavalin matter. It's all being done primarily by the Globe and Mail. And of course, has there been seven reporters looking into, oh, get out of the party politics for a minute, into the hundreds of millions of dollars from foreign lobby groups pouring into Canada to attack the oil sands. Are you kidding? Of course not. Those three stories in the course of 24 hours, one telling Albertans that the way to save them from massive unemployment is to bring in hundreds of thousands of unqualified immigrants or something. I didn't quite get the point. The next was proof that global warming is a sickness. And part of that proof is how cold this winter was. A doctor said it, so it's true. And now this, seven reporters. The largest number I have actually ever seen on one story in Canadian history. I have never seen a story by any media outlet in my 47 years. Maybe I've been watching the news for 30 years. Never in my life have I seen seven stories and seven reporters on one story. Have you? No, you haven't. Tr trying anything, everything to derail the conservatives from retaking Alberta in the election next month. That's the state broadcaster. You just can't believe a single word they say. They hate you, they lie to you, they attack you, and then they send you the bill. Stay with us for more. For Mr. President, I rise today to consider the Green New Deal with the seriousness it deserves. This is, of course, a picture of former President Ronald Reagan 
naturally firing a, a machine gun while riding on the back of a dinosaur. You'll notice a couple of important features here. Uh, first of all, uh, the rocket launcher uh, strapped to President Reagan's back, and then the stirring, unmistakable patriotism of the velociraptor holding up a tattered American flag, a symbol of all it means to be an American. Now, critics might quibble with this depiction of the climactic battle of the Cold War, because while awesome, in real life, there was no climactic battle. There was no battle with or without velociraptors. The Cold War, as we all know, was won without firing a shot. But that quibble actually serves our purposes here today, Mr. President, because this image has as much to do with overcoming communism in the 20th century as the Green New Deal has to do with overcoming climate change in the 21st. For Mr. That's President, Republican Senator Mike Lee in a speech, a very silly speech. I can't believe how much of it I watched, actually. I think I watched about 10 minutes, eight minutes of it. Um, he proceeded to show Aquaman riding on the back of a seahorse, and he went on. And I, I must tell you, at first I thought, this is very silly. And perhaps it's even beneath the dignity of the U.S. Senate, perhaps the greatest deliberative chamber in the free world. But I think his point was debating the Green New Deal proposed by Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and others is absurd to begin with. And perhaps his take on the matter was borne out because it was voted down 57 to 0. Not a single Democrat, even those who had promoted the bill, voted in favor of it. It was very strange, and joining us now via Skype to talk about it is our friend Mark Morano, the boss of ClimateDepot.com. Great to see you, Mark. I tell you, uh, that was a pretty awesome velociraptor carrying an American flag, and that was just pure patriotism. It was very silly, but I think that was the point, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, he nailed it exactly. Essentially, Ronald Reagan... Uh, it was the importance of fighting communism. And the Green New Deal really does represent the greatest threat we face now, which is the imposition of socialism. But it's actually a hidden socialism in, in a way because they're trying to cloud it behind the urgency of global warming. No time to debate it. We only have 10 years, 11 years. We have to pass this. Uh, but Mike Lee also went on to talk about, you know, just stop worrying about global warming. Go get married. Have kids and forget about all this. I mean, he really, he got to the heart of it so much that uh, AOC, Ocasio-Cortez uh, uh, came out today and attacked Mike Lee saying that he was not taking his job seriously in the United States Senate. I submit to you, he took his job deadly serious and gave it all the seriousness that the Green New Deal deserved yesterday in that speech and in that vote. Yeah, I mean, one of the, um, I mean, he had a bunch of big charts he put up on, uh, on the easel there. And one of them was talking about cow farts and it, it was like it was yeah. I know that's and he was talking about uh, banning airplanes and he said well how would that work in Hawaii and that's when that Aquaman seahorse business came in and <laughs> yeah. it was very silly I have to admit I couldn't stop watching it it was so silly to see a, a senator refer to Aquaman and giant seahorses and cow farts but I think I think he was showing how nutty this was because just a few weeks ago Mark all these young 
uh, guns of the Democratic Party, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and half of the presidential uh, candidates in the Democrats, and most of the media were treating the Green New Deal as if it were a serious proposal. Um, so I think his mockery of it was because no one else had subjected it to any grown-up thinking. And in the end, not a single Democrat was willing to vote for it, even though it was their own bill. Yes, now that was actually uh, Mitch McConnell, the GOP leader, we'll start with that, did a very good plan. He basically was like, okay, every Democrat presidential candidate essentially feels compelled as a litmus test to support this. All the Democrats seem to be just crazy. And now, a few exceptions. Uh, you were actually four Democrats, I believe, that voted against it. One was Senator Manchin of West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Senator from Alabama voted against it. Uh, Senator Angus King uh, voted against it. Uh, and one other. And that, that was, first of all, significant that four Democrats broke. Beyond that, what McConnell was doing was just showing them up. He wanted to get them on record. And the, and the Democrats knew they don't want to be on record for something that's probably the, mo the most costly legislation ever proposed in the history of man, let alone in the history of the U.S., let alone that it, even if you believed all the science claims and all, the, all, the, all their technological claims, it would make no difference on global warming, even if we actually faced a catastrophe. So the cost-benefit analysis is just fails spectacularly. Democrats weren't willing to put their, their vote on it, so they decided to come up with this plan to vote present. So you had 43 Democrats voting present in order to avoid uh, just the, you know, being stuck with a label when they run for office, re-election in the Senate you know, in the next cycle, you know, especially if the, if the public sentiment turns more severely against the Green New Deal, even in the Democratic Party. They wanted to be protected. So that's what they did. It was a day of showmanship on Capitol Hill. Mike Lee knew that. He was having fun. AOC is upset with him today. Mitch McConnell released a video actually uh, just a little couple hours ago mocking the Democrats, talking about the urgency of this, and then all voting present because they don't want to deal with it right now. So it was definitely a big strategic win for the opponents of the Green New Deal yesterday in the United States Senate. Yeah, I mean, I love the sound of that. It's a really smart branding exercise because the New Deal, you know, I would say most millennials frankly don't know what that is, but they would vaguely, oh yeah, that was a great New Deal to really help working people out of the depression, the Green New Deal. Well, that's what we need. I mean, it. it but beyond that headline, it made no sense and it, and it clearly wasn't thought through. Um, that was voted down, I mean, not as you pointed out, not a single Democrat voted for it, four Democrats voted against it. In other jurisdictions, like Canada, our parties to the left are not so disciplined. They would absolutely vote for the Green New Deal, banning cow farts, banning airplanes, uh, even if they knew they would never have to uh, follow through, they would absolutely go all the way down the virtue signal and say, yeah, I'm for that. Um, yes. can, I think, therefore, even Canadians who are laughing at this, we have to have a little bit of jealousy that our liberal and new Democrat parties are not as sane as your Democrat party. <laughs> yeah, you're saying our Democrats are smarter. Yes. Well, I think a lot of it here is because there are so many swing districts and there's a huge 
out of those 43 Democrats, 30 probably could have comfortably voted virtue signaling and not worried. People like Chuck Schumer uh, and uh, Dianne Feinstein, they're not going to lose uh, you know, their home states. However, there's a lot of swing state Democrats, uh, maybe a dozen or so, that, would, that don't want to touch this. So in order to protect them, the vast majority of Democrats came up with this plan. But you're right, it was a good plan, because now in the next election cycle and 30-second ads, if if you're in a you know a, a fossil fuel energy place that has uh, fracking or coal, the, the Republican opponents can't say they supported or voted for the Green New Deal. They can now say credibly, I didn't vote for it if the time comes. So it's just politics uh, as it goes here in D.C. But interestingly, as we go forward, the real big news here is we have now a strength in Donald Trump in many different ways beyond just the Mueller report. And Donald Trump's having his big rally in Michigan tonight. This is huge. The media has been deflated. But what it means now is Donald Trump essentially feels invincible. And it's coming at a perfect time, Ezra, because we're looking at a presidential commission on climate change mm. led by Dr. Will Happer of Princeton, the man I wrote in my book about, the man I've been urging this administration to put in charge. It looks like it may happen hmm. because Donald Trump now is feeling you know, the wind is at his back. The Republicans are all excited. This this monkey's been lifted, the dark shadow of this report. So the Green New Deal just might collide with this presidential commission on climate. And that could be the biggest economic and climate story of the rest of 2019. That's what I'm hoping for. It's still not official, but I'm hoping this commission comes together. Well, give me one more minute on that. I mean, we started off with the jokey um, Green New <laughs> Deal and just because it was fun. But... Um, you know, I, I'm an advocate for Canada's oil sands and for fracking. That has been stopped by Canadian politics. While we were twiddling our thumbs, the United States has become a net energy exporter. And I understand it's now actually a net crude oil exporter, which I never thought was possible. Um, certainly, uh, and if it's not uh, a net oil exporter on a constant basis now, it surely will be in a year or so, according to... Um, uh, and uh, the um, EPA and the Energy Information Administration, they both predict that American production will continue to grow. Yeah, That's we keep been going over yes, you're right, but it's, the trend is there, even if it's not a permanent for this year. It's amazing. I mean, we Donald Trump has unleashed and un just stripped away with all these regulatory and just sent a signal to the marketplace that it's okay to start new projects that you're not going to be shut down. That's just that signal alone, not right. even just the idea that he was willing to pull out of Paris, the idea that he was willing to start tossing out the clean uh, power plan, so-called clean power plan that President Obama did, the climate plan from EPA. That has unleashed it further. But interestingly enough, here's our problem, and, I, and I'm sure Canada has the same thing because we've had milquetoast Republicans like George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, because we've had weak senators and congressmen, the United States has rubber stamped the U.N. reports. Even the Trump administration allowed a national climate assessment last year. What did that lead to? We had a federal judge last week rule that you couldn't do oil drilling in a pipeline because because of the climate concerns based that the U.S. government has accepted. Hmm. So in a way, I, I don't know how any judge in America, including the Supreme Court, could allow energy development if the, if, there's, if the Trump administration is allowing the IPCC and the National Climate Assessment, which it is based on, written by environmental activists and Obama's climate negotiator, to stand as U.S. government accepted scientific reports. Wow. So what 
President Trump is going to do is appoint a commission right. headed by Will Happer and possibly including people like Judith Curry and Richard Lindzen, the climate scientist, and they're going to re-examine the basis for the UN and the National Climate Assessment. And we are going to have, for the first time, an official government report that we can base policy on, that, po that cabinet members can say, well, as the Presidential Commission on Climate reported, and finally have an official document that the government will accept that is a, a, that different than the United Nations report. Wow. That will give us judicial hope with all these lawsuits, children's lawsuits, dr oil drilling lawsuits, pipeline lawsuits, you name it. This is possibly the most single greatest climate legacy that President Trump could do. It hasn't happened yet and it's not official, but it looks like a good probability it could happen here this year. Well, that's so encouraging, Mark. And I remember two years ago, you and I talking about the appointment of Scott Pruitt to be Trump's yes. first EPA administrator. And we were so tickled pink by that. Now he uh, did not stay in that position long. He was sort of drummed out of there by the hard left, but it did set a tone. And I was, it was my favorite appointment, frankly. And yes. from what you, now give me just 30 more seconds on this Hafner. I'm sorry, I don't recall off the top of my head his biography. Can you tell me why you're so excited about this potential choice of him? Give, me, give our viewers a minute on his background. Sure. Uh, Professor Will Happer. I actually, uh, when I worked in the United States Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, he was my first choice to come in 2009 to testify to Congress. He has over 200 peer-reviewed papers, and he's, he's, an, he's one of the world's topmost experts on the physical uh, effect of the greenhouse effect. 200 peer-reviewed papers, and he testified, and he's continued to do that we are in a CO2 famine right now, that carbon dioxide uh, is at the lowest levels, historically speaking, that we need more of it, that there is no climate crisis. And he has got the credentials, he's got the backbone, and he's got the, the backing now of President Donald Trump. If he gets in charge of this commission, they're going to re-examine the whole physical basis of carbon dioxide being the control knob for the climate. Huh. And if and then this commission, it could take six months or more, will release their reports. The United States government could then have an official document to counter accepting all these UN reports and national climate assessments. And we could actually, it could have so many mirror effects when you have someone like Will Happer in charge of, uh, you know, who's, who's a, the, one of the most strident climate skeptics out there. It could have an effect from everything from NASA's nonsensical website citing the 97%, NOAA's website, EPA website. All of these claims, the boilerplate claims that we all see over and over could actually be affected and it'll give the cabinet cover. Even Scott Pruitt went on TV, he had, to, he had to defend science. Not the best role for a cabinet member, but now every cabinet member can say, well, as the Presidential Commission on Climate, it is the most important thing that Donald Trump could do to his climate legacy. Isn't that amazing? Will Haffer, I'll certainly keep my eyes peeled. And uh, it does not surprise me that you were the one to bring us this news because this is not news that the mainstream media would want. I just want to leave you with one little fact about Canada. Mark, of course, your main focus is the United States and you and you go to all the UN global warming conferences uh, where our friend Sheila Gunn-Reed has gone now three times. Um, I want to let you know that while Donald Trump has signaled to American oil and gas and mining that it's drill baby drill in Canada, we have before our parliament right now a bill called C-69 that would actually add so many more regulations to any industrial projects, including oil sands, pipelines, whatever. One of them, I'm not even kidding, Mark, and this is me just telling you something for your American friends, there would now be a gender 
analysis attached to any pipeline, any large industrial project. I know you probably think I'm kidding. That is working its way through our parliament right now, gender analysis. I hate to tell you that because that's just great news for Americans. You'll get all the jobs and investment while we do gender analysis. Imagine if you're an investor, you have to choose between Donald Trump's America or Justin Trudeau's Canada. Imagine where you're going to put your bucks. Last word to you, my friend. Well, actually, I mean, it's funny you should say that. On my headline on Climate Depot right now, Ezra, is white people are blamed for the big cyclone that hit Africa in, uh, I believe it was uh, Mozambique and a couple other countries. And the uh, the black separatists, uh, basically the, the group that's supporting the land grabs in South Africa, is claiming that, quote, the white man's science supports the fact that these storms are hitting Africa. So white people are creating global warming, which is impacting uh, Africa. And it also goes back, I actually have flashbacks to an article. I went to the UN summit in 2005 in Montreal, Canada, and I interviewed a lady about climate gender justice. And the gist of it is men create global warming and women suffer the most. So this has been around for decades. And now it's very sad and disheartening to hear that Canada is implementing this wacky, insane kind of uh, you know, rhetoric that's been around for decades is now becoming law. And of course, you have African countries now basically blaming the white man uh, for creating global warming and then making their storms worse, which, by the way, there's no science. Actually, the, the trop tropical cyclone activity is on a d downward trend. So they have no science to support that. But it has turned racial. It has turned gender. I don't expect this to stop. That's the whole point of the Green New Deal. It's to yeah. divide Americans, everything, rich, poor, um, and uh, 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 everything down from our diets. You know, you're a meat eater. You're going to be, we already have, you have the UN climate chief actually saying that retired now, Christina Figueres, meat eaters should be treated in restaurants the same way smokers are treated, given their own section in the back and pushed out of the way because it's the one to be frowned upon. Oh so now God. you have all this. I mean, it's just it's identity politics and it's infiltrating it. And that should be opposed. Hopefully there's some way Canadians can oppose what you're describing. But once that takes root, uh, you know, this is it's an ugly situation. Yeah, well, I tell you, uh, I like getting the good news from you about the United States and I'm commiserating with you a little bit about the bad news we have up here. Maybe we'll change it in due course, but for now, it's, I'm, I'm sorry to report, it's all bad news north of the border. Mark, keep up the fight down there. I'm, I'm so encouraged by what you've told us about, uh, about this prospective presidential commission, and maybe you can keep us updated as it, if it comes to fruit and as That's it goes along. And the media has gone nuts. They are attacking Professor Will Happer, they were attacking any of the any of the scientists who would be on it. There are op eds, New York Times. Everyone's the media is beside themselves. This will be the first official major challenge to the United Nations, an official government body that's ever occurred since hmm. the United Nations Climate Panel started. So this wow. is huge news. Well, thank you for sharing it with us, our viewers, because I know it hasn't made the news here in Canada, and I'm going to keep my eye peeled for Will Happer going forward. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. All Thank right, you. there you have it. Mark Morano from ClimateDepot.com. I believe he is literally the most plugged-in observer, critic, and lay expert in global warming politics and science, and we're delighted to have him as a regular guest on our show. And as you know, at these global warming conferences, Sheila Gunn-Reed always connects with him uh, on the ground, and he becomes our sort of resident expert on the scene. So there's some important news for you today about this prospective presidential commission. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel.
Welcome back on my monologue yesterday about the New Zealand government's decision to ban the manifesto of the terrorists responsible for the mass shooting at a mosque in Christchurch. David Heath writes, Well done, New Zealand. I want to read it now. Before banning it, I couldn't be bothered with it. Well, that's the thing about banning. It's sort of reverse psychology. You want to see what someone tells you you can't see. Isn't that the truth? Andy Niemers writes, New Zealand has been the soft home of semi-commie indulgences for generations now, and to blow their little bubble of being a Western democratic state is being put to the test. Hello? Well, look, I, I just thought it was really weird how, I mean, I give them credit. They call the guy the chief censor. Um, that's more honest than here in Canada where we call it the chief of the Human Rights Commission. But you can't read it unless you answer their questions about who you are and pay them $102. That is a picture, a snapshot of the future of the internet if uh, social justice warriors get their way. On my interview with Pardes Saleh about lawyer Michael Avenatti facing charges for alleged embezzlement and extortion, Janet Massiello writes, he was on CNN and MSNBC 108 times in just a few months. They were pushing him as the next Democratic presidential candidate. Is anyone surprised? Yeah, I, um, they will throw anything at Donald Trump and have for two, more than two years. I think it's amazing. I have to say I was surprised that Robert Mueller, with his team of Democrats, there was no Republicans on his team. You, you went through the stats. He had 19 lawyers. 40 FBI and forensics and accountant staff. He had 60 people. They were all Democrats. And they vindicated Trump. I am surprised by that. What a great rebuke of the media party, as if you needed another rebuke of them. That's the thing. If you have a team like that that, destroy, that, that ran, I don't know, political party, they would be voted out. If you had a team like that that ran a company into the ground, they would probably go bankrupt, and if they did something really wrong, they might be charged with securities fraud. But here you have that team in the media getting it so wrong, and, and where's the consequences? They're still all on TV calling themselves experts. Susanna Simpson commented and uh, said, I can't wait to get my Lebrano's mug. I'm taking it to work while I wear my Rebel Media pin on my jacket. Make their heads spin. Susanna, I like your Rebel patriotism and folks. I got to tell you that Lebrano's poster is gorgeous. It is a truly a work of art, and I believe it's a collector's item. And the reason I say that is because 15 years ago, when I was with the Western Standard and we published the Lebrano's original, people had that on their wall for years. I remember, I'm trying to remember the exact dates, but it was years later that I would still see that poster on walls, people's offices, um, because it was so gorgeous. And may I encourage you to consider going to thelebranos.com. And I'm only saying it because I think it's gorgeous. Uh, you don't have to pay anything for the image. You can download it for free as your computer wallpaper. That's the background of your computer. You could have it there for free. If you want the poster, obviously, you've got to pay for it. We've got to ship it to you and whatnot. Mug, T-shirt. I'm excited by it because it's pretty great. Folks, that's the show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom. Thank you.